what we want to do very basically is go through some ideas in theology um, and contrast some, some uh, two particular ideas. Um, one which is commonly called Reformed Theology and uh, the position that we take here in the community, I can't say that we, everybody, should uh, take, but in general, because everybody will have their own ideas on this. Um, but the, the series that we want to do is basically going to be five points, which are commonly called tulips, uh, the five basic points of Calvinism. We'll list those, and you'll, we'll go through them, and you'll see how they go from one to the other, very consistent system. Um, and I'd like to just read a lot of quotes today uh, from different things, from church histories and from people who are speaking from the Reformed position. And we'd like to like the uh, discussion to take take this kind of a of a of an order. I'll give about a half an hour on the uh, Reformed side, and I'll give uh, about a half an hour on the opposite side. From my point of view, you can call it my view if you want to. Um, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to accept either one if you don't want to. Um, I'm just going to be presenting the sides, and then we'll have some discussion after that. Okay? So, for just hold all your questions and everything, because for half an hour I'm going to be reading quotes and uh, giving background to ideas, and then another half hour after that I'm going to be giving the opposite side, and then I'm going to open it up for discussion. And we'll have discussion just on the one point that I cover today, not the whole system. But just on the one point that I, that we talk about today. Otherwise the discussion could be hairy and go on all afternoon. We have to draw the line someplace. Okay? What we want to talk about, starting off with, is the whole system itself. And, uh, we have to look at some basic ideas. I'm going to write them down on the board. Look at this. You think it'll pick me up? Um, we'll look at some basic ideas. Okay. Now, the first three that I'm going to put up here are not necessarily in the particular order that the people who would, would teach this kind of thing would put them out because they have discussions amongst themselves as to what order, in which order these come. When we look at this, start off with a predestination. And then there is the decrees of God. And then there's foreknowledge. These are sort of the preliminaries to the to the whole idea of the five points of the Reformed theology, um, which is commonly called Philip. These are sort of the preliminary ideas. Now, there's a lot of discussion amongst the, the Reformed theologians as to which one of these comes first, predestination, decrees, foreknowledge. And so, in a sense, it's better to leave them, as far as their sequence is concerned, sort of floating, because it just depends on where you're going to stand as to which one comes first. Now, some We'll say predestination comes first, and then we'll even include sometimes the decrees in predestination. Now, predestination, or foreordination, as it is sometimes called, means that um, that action which God takes 
that after which God says, in the pre-planning or the setting down, the arrangement, the ordering of events that are going to happen in the universe. It's not necessary that you get it verbatim from me because you should be able to explain it in your own way anyway. Okay? It's the, the foreordaining or the setting down of the things that are going to take place. Now, there's a lot of latitude here, a lot of variance in, in what uh, what theologians say will take place. Some of them say that major events are uh, foreordained by God, that he has planned that certain things will take place in this fashion, and they do regardless. Then there are some that say that, that go to the other side and say that absolutely everything. Now, I don't have my book here this morning because somebody borrowed it and didn't bring it back. I think they took it to England with them. Um, I'd like to have that book, but uh, it, this particular theologian, who's an American uh, Reformed theologian, said that absolutely everything, where every blade of grass is at the time, where every snowflake falls, where every leaf is on every tree, has completely been predetermined by God. In other words, absolutely everything is fixed. Okay, now, some people would say that might be a bit extreme. Even the people in the Reformed camp would probably say that that's a bit extreme. So they have their differences of ideas even within that, and I'm just going to try to present the, the kind of ideas that they are dealing with this morning. I'm not going to, in this particular part of it, I'm not going to say anything about what I think. Okay? I'll let them discuss whether which one of these came first. Now, some of the theologians will say that predestination happens first. God ordered, God planned. This is the way the history of the universe is going to go. And then, because of that, he knew. Of course, if you plan something ahead of time and it's fixed so that it will happen that way, then you do know what is going to happen. Now, there are some others who turn this around, and some that are not even in the Reformed camp, that turn this around and say that foreknowledge comes first, and because of foreknowledge, predestination follows. Okay? So there are some that, that turn this around and say, God foreknew because of his being outside of time, is living in what is called the eternal now, and then because of that, predestination takes place because of the fixity of future events. The fact that future events are fixed because they can be completely foreknown. So, uh, uh, this guy that I was reading in uh, Bettner, uh, the American theologian I mentioned, said that it is inconsistent for a person who is not, a re not in the Reformed camp to say that foreknowledge takes place, but predestination does not. Well, and I would have a tendency to agree with him there. And he rightly pointed out that any person who holds on to foreknowledge eventually will logically have to come to the idea of predestination. And yet you'll find many people, you will find many people that are trying to hold on to the idea of foreknowledge and say that they reject the idea of predestination. And yet the Reformed theologians themselves say that it's inconsistent to do that. If you're going to hold one, you've got to hold both. Okay? So they, it's sort of hard to say what, in what sequence these are, and uh, you try to figure out what's going on. The decrees, help you understand what this means, the decrees are things that God sets down as to how he's going to respond to the way that the history of the universe is going. Decrees are the things that God sets down as to how he's going to respond to the way the history of the universe is going. Um, one of the decrees, uh, the one of the, that's most talked about, would be election that God chooses ahead of time which people will receive his grace and which people will not. Okay, it's God's it's, uh, decrees are the acts that God has planned ahead of time 
it is response to what's going to happen in the universe. So you can see how these as far as sequence is concerned can be very confusing. Or at least it, it leaves much room for discussion amongst the Reformed theologians. See now, I'll give you some practical examples of this. If you say that now one of the decrees is that God elects people, he chooses that some will receive his grace and some will not. And or, or simply by the fact that he chooses that some will receive grace, that automatically excludes others. It's not that he says, you are not going to receive my grace, but he simply says that some will. And by doing that, he leads the others to their, as they would say, he leads the others to their just condemnation. Okay? Which is commonly called reprobate, reprobation. Okay? So let's take the decree of election as an example. Um, you might say, okay, God has chosen that this is the way the history of the universe is going to go. And he sees that man will be, because of his predestination and his foreknowledge, that man will be um, completely depraved, that he will not be able to choose to do what God wants him to do. Okay? Now, you might say, well, do they really believe that? Well, I'm going to read some quotes in a minute from Calvin and some others, Luther and so forth. Um, concerning that. So that if God says, now these people are going to be chosen, some would say, did he say that before he determined that everyone would be in sin? In other words, did he say, I'm going to have some people that are going to be redeemed and some people that are not. I'm going to have some that are going to be lost and some that are going to be, that are going to be saved. And then fix the history of the universe or did he fix the history of the universe, and then in light of the fact that everyone was going to be a sinner, did he say, I am going to choose to take some out of that by my grace? Okay? So then you have the two different ideas there, and you can see that there could be other, a lot of other variables with just these three um, in trying to hold them in a balance as to how did God actually look at it? Did he say, every, did he see everybody was going to be lost, and then say, in my mercy I will choose some, I think it's a view that's most often held. Or did he say, I will have some that will be saved and I will have some that will be lost. And that, that was a part of what is called his secret decree. The idea of the secret decree or the secret will of God, the secret intention of God, is that, that evil in the universe exists because it is God's will for it to exist. And that's something that we don't understand and God is not revealed in the scripture, therefore, it is called secret decree. Okay? It is called secret in that we don't understand why God says that he hates evil and yet has, has ordered it in the universe so that we have evil in the universe. Okay? Because it would appear as if, if everything is, is determined by God and there is evil in the universe, therefore evil must be God's will. That evil exists in the universe. There is something, something underneath the, um, the first uh, thing that would present itself to your mind concerning evil, that God really has an intention for evil. That it's either necessary or he desires to have evil in the universe for a particular plan that he has. So it's called God's secret decree. And you may come in contact with these, these uh, terms, so you may as well know a little bit of what they are. Okay, now, there's, like I've said already, there are two streams basically, of this thought. And that is, one that starts with predestination and then goes to foreknowledge, and the other one that starts with foreknowledge and then goes to predestination. But you either have all of these, or you don't. And we'll look at that a little bit later. Okay? Now, um, the thing that has progressed out of this, 
is commonly called tulip, but it just made five major points that came up in a synod. On, um, not a synod, on a, what do you, what do you call it? Was it a synod? It was a council. Yeah. It came up in a council and the five points were outlined and then they've, they've been come to be called, uh, the tulip, the idea of tulip. We're going to put them down. It's basically a way of remembering the five major points in the Reformed theology that result from these three bases. Okay? And that is total depravity, or as it is sometimes called, total inability. Total depravity or total inability, as it's sometimes called. The second one is unconditional election. idea that God has chosen, apart from any merit or any, anything that we have ever done, because he chose it before the, before the world began, he chose that some people would be redeemed out of the world, some people would receive his grace, and others would not, okay, by the fact that he has chosen one and not the other. Okay, so it's unconditional election, it's not conditioned on anything that we do. We are not chosen because of what we do, we're chosen simply because God has chosen to do so. Okay? Then there's limited atonement. has died only for those that are going to be redeemed out of the world. Only those that are going to receive God's grace, which has already been determined by God, only those, for only those people did Jesus die, and he did not die for others. Okay? Um, Jay Adams in his book, uh, Confident the Council, has said, the counselor cannot, he's a, a reformed theologian, and he said, the counselor cannot tell the counselee that Christ died for him because the counselor does not know whether Christ died for him or not. Okay? Now that does not say that the counselor cannot tell the counselee to repent, because he, does, because he doesn't know whether or not Christ died for him. It may be that Jesus did die for him, and if he repents, then, then there's, there's an idea there too. Um, if, it's, it's not a matter of if he repents, then he will be saved, but he will repent because he has already been elected. Um, it's commonly said, you do not, you are not saved because you repent and believe, but you repent and believe because you have already been saved. You see, God moves on your heart to change you, and once he changes your heart, because you couldn't keep his law anyway, which we'll look at later, um, that once he changes you, then you, you respond by repenting and believing. And it's not that you repent and believe, and therefore God's grace comes to you, but God's grace comes to you ahead of time, and then you respond by repenting and believing. Okay, so in this limited atonement, Jesus died only for those who are going to be saved, those who have been elected. Okay? The next thing is irresistible, or sometimes called efficacious. Okay, go on with that word. Irresistible. Irresistible. R-E-S-I-S-T-A-B-L-E. I had, a, I, had a, I had a note here where I wrote it down wrong. I must have been tired of something I wrote here. Irresistible. Okay. Irresistible grace. Or 
what is sometimes called efficacious grace. That is, grace that comes to you apart from your will. It moves on you, and it is not, it, you are not able to resist it. Okay? And that is, since God has chosen you to be saved, and he has elected you from before the foundation of the world, he moves on you, and if you were not moved upon, then you would never come, because you're not able to keep God for a lot more than you can. Okay? Then, lastly, there's the perseverance of the saints. Is that right? We're going to look at now how they flow together. The perseverance of the saints is commonly called eternal security. Okay? Commonly called that. Perseverance of the saints. Now we look at how they flow down. Because it's a very, very consistent system, because of predestination and God has decreed certain things that will happen in the universe, and because of his foreknowledge of what is going to take place, he saw that man would be totally, completely unable. He would be totally in depravity. And we'll define the word depravity in a moment. Um, that he's not going to be able to keep the law, he's not going to be able to repent, not going to be able to do what God wanted him to do, not going to be able to do anything good. We'll read some quotes in a minute concerning that. Um, then, because God saw that man was going to be in that condition, he chose ahead of time that some people would be taken out of that condition and would receive his grace, would be changed by God's force. Then, because of that, Jesus only died for those that were going to be changed. Because that was something that God knew, who was going to be saved, who was going to be lost. Because it had been predetermined. And then, uh, because of that, the Holy Spirit takes what has happened on the, on the cross and applies it effectually to the people so that they are saved. And then there's a the response of repentance and faith. Okay? And then, the perseverance of the saints is the idea that since it has happened apart from your will, and since it has happened in response to the Holy Spirit moving on your heart, then you cannot lose that, because it doesn't depend on what you do. You can never lose it, because it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what God has done. Okay? So that's basically the, the five steps. I'm going to read you some, some quotes as to what is the, dis the discussion that we're going to be looking at. church by Chadwick. According to the doctrine that Augustine opposed to the Pelagians, the entire race fell in Adam. This is, this is going into the first step, which is total depravity, the step we're going to take this morning. The entire race fell in Adam, the Latin version of Romans 5.12 said so. The transmission of hereditary sinfulness is bound up with the reproductive process. The general belief that virginity is a higher state than marriage proves for Augustine that the sexual impulse can never be free of some element of concupiscence. In any event, the practice of infant baptism for the remission of sins presupposes that infants arise polluted by sin. Since they have committed no actual sin, remission must be for the guilt attaching to a fault in their nature. Therefore, if babies die unbaptized, they are damned, even though it will be a very mild form of damnation. Mankind is a lump of perdition, incapable, without, re without redeeming grace, 
of any act of pure goodwill, and all the virtues of the good pagan are vitiated by sin. Splendid vices, as a zealous adherent of Augustine soon put it. If all humanity were consigned to hell, that would be nothing but strict justice. Nevertheless, God's mercy is such that, inscrutably, he has chosen a fairly substantial minority of souls for salvation by a decree of predestination, which is antecedent to all differences of merit. To complain that this election is unjust is to fail to consider the gravity of the guilt attaching to original sin and yet more to actual sin. A necessary... Uh, don't know if I should say the American version or the British version. Should I say cor corollary or corollary? <laughs> to say a mixture, huh? Okay, you get the word anyway. Of this doctrine of predestination is that, is that grace is irresistible. If man is so corrupt that he no longer has, has free will to do good, grace must do all. And that this power is irresistible is a plain deduction from the divine decree of predestination, which otherwise would be frustrated. It is the purpose of God to bring his elect infallibly to a certain end. According, accordingly, the empirical test of the operation of grace lies in a man's consistent goodness of character right through to the end of his life, a final perseverance which is a foreordained gift of God independent of merit. Okay, there's more here. Am I going too fast? You understand? This is concerning the discussion between Pelagius and um, Augustine. Pelagius, approximately 360 to 420, a British monk and theologian, came to Rome about 400, where, with the help of, how's it pronounced? Colesius? Anyway, C-O-E-L-E-S-D-I-U-S. -E -E he preached his idea of how man is saved. He met Augustine in Africa about 410 and soon found that Augustine would have no part of his ideas. He was banished from Rome in 418. Pelagius, the cool, calm individual, had known nothing of the struggle of soul through which Augustine had gone before he was saved. Hence, Pelagius was more willing to give the human will a place in the process of salvation. But Augustine had found his will helpless to extricate him from the morass of sin in which he found himself because of his sinful nature. Pelagius believed that each man is created free as Adam was and that each man has the power to choose good or evil. Each soul is a separate creation of God and therefore uncontaminated by the sin of Adam. <clears throat> the universality of sin in the world is explained by the weakness of human flesh rather than by the corruption of the human will by original sin. Man does not inherit original sin from his first ancestor, although the sins of the individuals of the past generation do weaken the flesh of the present generation so that sins are committed unless the individual wills, unless the individual wills to cooperate with God in the process of salvation. The human will is free to cooperate with God in the attainment of holiness and can make use of such aids to grace as, as the Bible, reason, and the example of Christ. Because there is no original sin, infant baptism is not an essential element in salvation. Augustine, the great bishop of Hippo, it opposed what he believed as a was a denial of the grace of God by insisting that regeneration is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. Man was originally made in the image of God and free to choose good and evil. But Adam's sin bound all men because Adam was the head of the race. Man's will is entirely corrupted by the fall so that he must be considered totally depraved and unable to exercise his will in regard to the matter of salvation. 
Augustine believed that all inherit, all inherit sin through Adam and that no one, therefore, can escape original sin. Man's will is so bound that he can do nothing to bring about his salvation. Salvation can only come to the elect through the grace of God in Christ. God must energize the human will to accept his proper grace, which is only for those whom he has elected to salvation. Pelagius' views were condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431, but neither the Eastern nor Western churches ever fully accepted Augustine's views. John, you pronounce it Cassian, a monk, endeavored to find a compromise position by which the human and divine will could cooperate in salvation. He taught that all men are sinful because of the fall, and that their wills are weakened, but not totally corrupted. Man's partially free will can cooperate with divine grace in the process of salvation. He feared that the doctrines of election and irresistible grace taught by Augustine might lead to ethical irresponsibility. The view of Cassianus was condemned at the Synod of Orange in 529 in favor of a moderate Augustinian view. Okay? So then, what is the idea of total depravity? The word depravity comes from two Latin words, de and pravus, which means very crooked. Very crooked. Okay? So when we talk, when we talk about total depravity, it's talking about the person being very crooked. And this means in when we say total depravity, it means not just the physical body is, has been uh, uh, harmed through the fall, through uh, sin entering into the human race, but that also that the moral nature of man has been depraved as well, so that sin is passed from one person to another, or as say Adams puts it, a corrupted deposit is placed in the soul. Okay? Now, um, I'd like to give you uh, what Calvin said some of what he said about total depravity and his definition. I'd like them to just to speak for themselves as to what what they said it was. Okay? That's why I'm going to give a lot of quotes. As the spiritual life of Adam consisted in a union to his maker, so an alienation from him was the death of his soul. Nor is it surprising that he ruined his posterity by his defection, which has perverted the whole order of nature in heaven and earth. When the divine image in him was obliterated, and he was punished with the loss of wisdom, strength, sanctity, truth, and righteousness with which he had been adorned, but which were su succeeded by the dreadful pests of ignorance, impotence, impurity, vanity, and iniquity, he suffered not alone, but involved all his posterity with him and plunged them into the same misery. This is that hereditary corruption which the fathers called original sin, meaning by sin the deprivation of nature previously good and pure on which subject they had much contention. We derive an innate depravity from our very birth. Every descendant, therefore, from the impure source is born infected with the contagion of sin. And even before we behold the light of life, we are in the sight of God defiled and polluted. From a putrefied root have sprung putrid branches which have transmitted their put putrescence to remoter ramifications. For the children were so vitiated in their parents that they became contagious to their descendants. There was in Adam a spring of corruption that is such a spring of corruption that it is transfused from parents to children in a perpetual stream. To remove all uncertainty and misunderstanding on this subject, let us define original sin. It is not my intention to discuss all the definitions given by writers. I shall only produce one which I think perfectly consistent with the truth. Original sin, therefore, appears to be 
and hereditary pravity and corruption of our nature diffused through all the parts of the soul, rendering us obnoxious to the divine wrath and producing in us those works which the scripture calls works of the flesh. When it is said that the sin of Adam renders us obnoxious to the divine judgment, it is not to be understood as, as if we, though innocent, were undeservedly loaded with the guilt of his sin. But because we are all subject to a curse in consequence of his transgression, he is therefore said to have involved, involved us in guilt. And therefore, infants themselves, though they have not yet produced the fruits of their iniquity, yet they have the seed of it within them, even their whole nature is, as it were, a seed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Wherefore, I have asserted that sin has possessed all the powers of the soul, man has not only been ensnared by the inferior appetite, but abominable impiety has seized the very citadel of his mind, and pride has penetrated to the inmost recesses of his heart. Now, let us dismiss those who dare to charge God with their corruption, because we say that men are, corrupt, are naturally corrupt. Our perdition proceeds from the sinfulness of our flesh, not from God. And let no one murmur that God might have made a better provision for our safety by preventing the fall of Adam. For such an objection ought to be abominated as too presumptuously curious by all pious minds. Okay? Um, that was Calvin. I'd like to read you a little bit from a book called God's Strategy in Human History by Forster Marston. Taking the opposite view, but in their appendix, they're um, talking about the origin of the idea of original sin, or I should say the popularization of it. The idea was floating around. It wasn't accepted by the early church fathers. Uh, it wasn't accepted by the church widely until the time of Augustine. Augustine's distinctive views on original sin form a useful starting point for the considering, of considering his system. The early church never doubted the seriousness of the fall or of Adam's sin, but Augustine gave an entirely different interpretation to it. He taught that when Adam sinned, all his descendants sinned in him, and so shared in the guilt of the act. <clears throat> the main support which Augustine found for this was the Latin version of Romans 5.12, which reads, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for in him all men sinned. Augustine repeatedly referred to this verse and thought it plain and unambiguous. The problem with it is that the Latin translation renders the Greek phrase, F-O, as in him, which is an impossible rendering. Sanday and Hedlum, one of the great modern textual authorities on Romans, wrote, Though this expression, F-O, has been much fought over, there can now be little doubt that the true rendering is because. They will allow no other reading and note that it is the classical that in classical writers the phrase means on condition that. They also consider the suggestion that the apostle meant to imply because all sinned in Adam. But they rightly object to this. The objection is that the words supplied are far too important to be left to be to be understood. To be left to be understood. If St. Paul had meant this, why did he not say so? The insertion of N Adam would have removed all ambiguity. Okay? Not only did Augustine have difficulty in finding supporting verses, but he also faced a crushing difficulty. He said that for Christians, the guilt of sinning in Adam had been removed in baptism. Surely, therefore, a child born of two Christian parents had been forgiven in them just as he had sinned in Adam. Augustine's answer was twofold. First, 
it is quite possible for parents to transmit to their children that which they possess not themselves. You get that? It's possible for them to transmit to their children that which they possess not themselves. Secondly, children are born in Satan's power because, quote, they are born of the union of the sexes which cannot even accomplish its own honorable function without the incidence of shameful lust. Augustine taught that sexual intercourse from any motive other than procreation was a venial sin, and the act was always shameful since it always, since always tinged with passion. Thus, only Christ, he said, was born pure since only he was conceived without sexual intercourse. Okay? Before rendering Augustine's arguments for the doctrine, before considering Augustine's arguments for the doctrine, we may note how important a keystone it was in his system which came to, to dominate Western Christianity. Although it may be logically more obvious to begin with origi from original sin and argue to this idea of baptism, Augustine's actual practice was to begin from infant baptism and to argue to original sin. Thus, he based two important ideas on infant baptismal regeneration. A, that since baptism has this effect, it must remove guilt. So in the case of infants, it must be the guilt of Adam's sin. B, that this gives an irrefutable example of regeneration being independent of anything in the person's own will. Okay? So, we have the basic idea, I think you can see from that, the basic idea is that we receive something passed on by um, heredity from our parents, and then that's down from Adam, that we receive a corrupted deposit in us that causes us to sin. And it's, it's not just that it gives us an influence to sin. They're not saying that at all. They're saying it actually causes sin in us and that there is no way that we can do that which is good. I'd like to read you some more from Calvin concerning this. These are some practical outworkings of the doctrine that man's will as is enslaved and he can do nothing that is good. From Calvin again. Man is not possessed of free will for good work unless he be assisted by grace and that special grace which is bestowed on the elect alone in regeneration. Then man will be said to possess free will in this sense, not that he has an equally free election of good and evil, but because he does evil voluntarily and not by constraint. In other words, he can't do what is good, and yet he, even though he can't do what is good, he does what is evil voluntarily by his will. Okay? The will, therefore, is so bound by the slavery of sin that it cannot excite itself, much less devote itself, to anything good. We must observe this grand point of distinction that man has been corrupted by his fall, having been corrupted by his fall, sins voluntarily, not with reluctance or constraint, with the strongest propensity of disposition, not with violent coercion, with the bias of his own passion, and not with external compulsion. Yet such is the gravity of his nature that he cannot be excited and biased to do anything but what is evil. If this be true, there is no impropriety in affirming that he is under a necessity of sinning. In other words, they're affirming that it's man of necessity sins. He has to sin. Man is so enslaved by sin as to be of his own nature incapable of an effort or even an inspiration towards that which is good. Okay, so then, according to his views, man cannot do anything that is good. Uh, one of the church history books we were looking in said that man cannot even imagine 
cannot, cannot even make a concept in his mind of good because of his depravity. Cannot even imagine it. And C.S. Lewis, I, I believe, rightly pointed out, if you can have no concept of good, how do you know that you're depraved? That's something that C.S. Lewis pointed out. So then, one of the, some of the results of this is that it, it works out as far as God's, God's relationship to man in giving law to man. The purpose of the law, then, of God giving man law or giving man commandments, is to show him that he could not keep it. You understand? The purpose of the law was to show man how depraved he was and that he could not keep the law. Man is unable to keep the law of God. Um, if you want, you can read whole section in the compendium to get a hold of Calvin's Institute. It's got a whole section on man is unable to keep the law of God. Okay? It's one of the, some of the outworkings of that. The purpose of the law is only to show us that we are sinners okay? and then that man is unable to keep the law which God has given. Um, another outworking of this is that man is responsible for more than what he is able to do. Man is responsible for more than what he is able to do. We get some more from Calvin. Yeah, and I'm going to read some from the Institute. I deny that sin is the less criminal because it is necessary. I deny also the other consequence, which they infer, that it is avoidable because it is voluntary. For if anyone wished to dispute with God and to escape his judgment, by the pretext of having been incapable of acting otherwise, he is prepared with an answer which we have elsewhere advanced, that it arises not from creation, but from the corruption of nature, that men, being enslaved by sin, can will nothing but what is evil. The corruption with which we are firmly bound originated in the revolt of the first man from his maker. If all men are justly, are justly accounted guilty of this rebellion, let them not suppose themselves excused by necessity. The second branch of their argument is erroneous because it makes an improper transition from what is voluntary to what is free. Okay. Our more subtle adversaries cavil because there is no impediment, they say, that prevents our exerting our own ability and God assisting our weak efforts. They adduce passages from the prophets where the accomplishment of our conversion seems to be divided equally between God and us. Turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you. I wish only this single point to be conceded to me, that it is in vain to infer our possession of ability to fulfill the law from God's command to us to obey it. Now, do you understand that idea? When God says you are to obey the law, then you cannot infer from that, they say, that you are able to keep it, simply because he has said that you are to keep it. In other words, you are unable to keep it, and God commands you to keep it, and therefore you're responsible to keep it, even though you are unable. But you cannot infer from God's command to keep it that you are able to do so. Okay? Since it is evident that for the performance of all the divine precepts, the grace of the legislator is both necessary for us and promised to us, and hence it follows that at least more is required of us than we are capable of performing. More is required of us than we are capable of performing. Um, yeah, that's in the, the section, the will of man is not free. The will of 
man is not free, and it's section 2, verse 9. Okay? The world of man is not free, section 2, verse 9 of the Institute. Okay? Um, I'd like to read you some from Jay Adams, who stands in the Reform camp as a, as a counselor. Got some wonderful books out on counseling. I really enjoy them, apply the principles, because he uses biblical principles in counseling. And I really enjoy the way, that he, the way that he points out the scripture and the way the scripture should be used in counseling. However, he does stand as a Reformed theologian, and I would like to, and he makes that fact known. He says, I want you to know that, which is, which is good of him and honest to do. And this is what he says concerning children and responsibility. While recognizing that any discussion of childhood responsibility evokes, oh, this is, excuse me, this is from the Christian Counselor's Manual, right here, Adam. While recognizing that any discussion of childhood responsibility evokes an undue amount of emotion from some, First, nevertheless, we must be bold to assert the biblical fact that God does hold children responsible from, for sin from the very first day of their lives. By nature, that is, that corrupted deposit with which we were, they were born, they are declared to be children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3, part B. They are, they are guilty in Adam, Romans 5. And when he says in Adam, that's, uh, you can tell that's from the same kind of thing that Augustine said. The Latin version says, in Adam, rather than because all men sin. Romans 5.12. In addition, they express their sinful nature by living in the lust of their flesh, indulging, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, part A. <laughs> the extent to which... Did you get that? In other words, the, he says that they are children of wrath, that's from the second part of the verse, and says that they, can, they because they are children of wrath, they do what is said in the first part of the verse. Whereas in Ephesians 2.3, it says, they walk in the desires of the flesh and of the, of the mind, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Okay? The extent to which God holds a child responsible may be hard to measure, but the fact that he does so is certain. David said, Behold, in sinful state I was born, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5, Berkeley Version, or Barclay. Elsewhere, he wrote, The wicked are estranged from the, from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Psalm 58.3 The fact of infant mortality in a world in which God has declared the wages of sin is death substantiates this doctrine of the moral culpability of infants before God. In other words, because children die, children must have sin. Because they die, they must have sin. And that means that children are responsible for personal sin because they have died. So in other words, because children die, it shows that therefore children must have sin. Now you can think that through as to whether or not it necessarily follows. Sin, or death, follows from sin. The wages of sin is death. But does that mean that all death is then a result of personal sin. If that's true, what about Abel? Okay? They are both held guilty guilty for sin because of Adam's sin. That he says, see Romans uh, 3.23 in chapter 5. And polluted by sin. Their corrupted nature expresses itself from birth, he passages above, in acts of actual transgression. In other words, from the day that they're born, they actually transgress. They make choices of sin from the day that they're born. 
So, there can be no doubt about it, God holds children responsible for their sins. The question, therefore, is not whether the sinful lifestyles developed by children with sinful natures in response to sinful influences or even acts of abuse against them are wrong or not. They are. Sin is sin, whether the sinner is young or old. Nor is it a matter of whether they are responsible. Again, they are. The very fact that children are not considered to be morally neutral in the sight of God means that they may be held responsible for making whatever right responses that it is possible for a child to make at any given age. As unredeemed sinners, children will fail to respond as they should. For this, they are accountable. As they grow in age, their responsibility grows as capability for response enlarges. Obviously, a three-month-old and a three-year-old child are able to handle life in two distinct ways. And failure to use their capabilities, speech, mobility, etc., righteously also increases the scope of culpability for actual sin. As capabilities enlarge, not only is the capacity for obedience greater, but the capacity for sinful responses is enlarged as well. At any given point in his life, therefore, a child is held responsible for doing what he ought to be able to do at that age. We have a footnote. That is to say, the child is held accountable for doing what a sinless child might have done were the fall not to have occurred. Then, he gives a quote, Man's responsibility goes far beyond his ability, wrote R.B. Kuyper in an excellent clear discussion of this point, the Bible tells us so. Okay, so Kuyper stood there too. Man's responsibility goes far beyond his ability. Okay? It is also true, he continues, that at every given point, the unconverted child will fail. His failure is nothing less than sin. He will fail, and yet he is totally responsible for what he's going to do of necessity. That was from the Christian Council's manual. Okay? I'd like to read you one other thing concerning responsibility from Martin Luther. This is in response to the bondage of the will. This is in response to the diatribe, which is written by, was it written by Erasmus? Erasmus. It's refuting a lot of places to hear Erasmus. And uh, the diatribe was a thing written on free will, the fact that man has free will, which, by the way, Calvin, in his institute, said that the whole term free will is dangerous and should be dropped from the church, should not be used. Um, these are the passages, this is Luther speaking, these are the passages which the diatribe quotes for free will from the Old Testament. He's just responded to those passages. It can quote nothing but imperative or hypothetical passages or wishes by which is signified not what we can do or do do, but what we ought to do and what is required of us so that our impotence may be made known to us and the knowledge of sin may be given to us. In other words, from a command, he says, you cannot deduce that you are responsible to keep what God has said. It can, uh, no, that's not it. It's not you, you can you can deduce from that that you are able to keep what God has said, but only that you are responsible to do so. So then, putting the two together, in, in the idea of total depravity, man is unable to do what God wants him to do. He's unable to do anything that's good. He must sin of necessity, but he is completely and totally responsible to do all that God has commanded him to do, even though he can't do it. And therefore he is guilty and justly condemned for not doing what God told him to do. Okay? And it's because of the thing we've, in, we've inherited with our nature. Okay? 
I'd like to read you something concerning um, concerning sin. The idea of three three basic ideas that Augustine brought into the church uh, from Manichaeanism, which he was a Manichaean before. Um, that he brought in with three basic ideas were man can be man can be corrupted by nature. He brought that in from Manichaeanism. That evil uh, matter can be evil in itself, which the Manichaeans were dualists. That evil can be uh, evil can be in, yeah right matter can be evil in itself. And then the idea of God existing outside of time. Um, I'd like to read you something from Calvin though from the Institute about flesh. But man cannot be better known in either faculty of his soul than when he is represented in those characters by which the scripture has distinguished him. If he be completely described in these words of Christ, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, as it is easy to prove, it is evident that he is a very miserable creature. The argument of our Lord is that man must be born again because he is flesh. In other words, because he is flesh in itself, because man is a human being, because he has a physical body, he has to be born again, just because of that. Therefore, everything in man that is not spiritual is, according to this mode of reasoning, denominated carnal. But we have nothing of the spirit except by regeneration. Whatever, therefore, we have from nature is carnal. Okay? That's in the section of Total Depravity of Man, uh, chapter 2, section 3, verse 1. Okay? I think that's all we'll go into the course now. A lot of other things. I, I sort of wish that I could just read to you the whole section on sin and depravity, and I would suggest to you that if you want to get the uh, compend or if you want to get a hold of a section of Calvin's Institute and read that, it'd be good for you to do so, to find out exactly what they're saying, or to read Luther's Bondage of the Will. Okay? Now, I'd like to go on for just a few minutes. I'm not going to take near as long with this other side. For just a few minutes with the opposite view, not in the sense of every single point is opposite, but just in the general idea that the, that the things are different in their, in their essence. Okay? Starting with God, living a sequence, or duration. Not having had any beginning to a sequence, and not having had any, and not going to be having any end to the sequence, and yet morally, the processes of its personality go go on in duration. It's the opposite view. Now they start two different places and go two different directions. And the more I've studied it, the more clearly I've seen that they do not run parallel. The two ideas do not run parallel. They run in opposite directions from each other. Okay? They go different ways. Now, starting with God living in a sequence of duration, that means then that God would be now, and he has a past, and he has a future. And then because of that, the future moral acts of human beings and some of those of his own acts are not known to God. Or the future, future acts of the will are not now reality. Okay? And I like I said, I'm, I'm, I needed the other book on Calvinism to go into a lot of the, the different scriptures from these things, but we're not going to discuss this in, in depth right now. We're going to go on to the, the certain 
heredity from my parents that I am evil, but it's because I choose, against the knowledge that I have, and have ability to do otherwise, I choose to do that which is wrong. Okay? So then, that would mean that you see this probably before, heard it from Floyd, or heard it from you. Sin is not a thing. It's not something that's inside of you. It's not, it's not a thing in itself. It's not evil, such as money. Money is not evil in itself. Okay. Use in a certain way. Okay? Sin is not a disease. Sin is not unavoidable. In other words, who has to steal? Who has to steal? Do you have to steal? If you have to steal, why do you look both ways before you take it? You're obviously considering whether you are or are not going to do so if you see. So obviously you can turn around and walk away. Okay? When I took things out of storage as a little kid, I knew. If I could choose these otherwise. Okay. I had to make restitution for that as well. Okay? So then, um, sin is unavoidable, but sin isn't the way you were born. There is a physical depravity that has happened to man. Man has been depraved physically. Our physical bodies are not in the same state as Adam's was. And that the environment is depraved. The environment in which we live is very crooked because we, are, we live with sinners. We live with people that have corrupted themselves because of sin. So then we have both the influence of our own physical bodies plus the environment in which we're living. A world that has been cursed because of sin and then the example of other people around us. So the influence uh, around us is very great towards sin, but that in itself is an occasion and not a cause. Okay? The difference between an occasion to sin and a cause to sin. The environment around us does not cause us to sin, because if we have ability and life, and that equals our responsibility, then we are able to resist the, the influence of the environment around us. And if we are not able to resist that influence, then we are not responsible, because we are not able. Okay? So it offers an occasion to sin, gives you an opportunity, but it does not cause sin. Therefore, man is responsible because he is able. Now I know it didn't, didn't take near as long for you to get through the second part, but um, I didn't go into, into quoting a lot of different people. I could have quoted a lot of the people I spoke on that. I just wanted to present the opposite side. But I wanted us to be sure to understand um, concerning total depravity, where people are coming from, from the opposite side that may be saying something like that. Now, we need to understand first that people who hold these ideas are people. And that every person is going to have their own idea concerning this. Like I said, there are lots of discussions between uh, reformed theologians, and that each individual person in their ideas uh, may have different degrees, different amounts of knowledge, and so we have to remember that uh, person number one is not person number two. 
In the same way that here in this community, although we talk about man's responsibility, there are different ideas concerning man's responsibility. And so, even here in the community, person number one is not person number two. Okay? So, I think we go on now to a time of discussion. And, uh, before you want to come up and... The looking forward to help me ask the question. Now we want to, so it's mostly uh, giving out information this morning, just in sharing where people are coming from, more than anything else. So this would be a time of gathering information for you, uh, more than a time of trying to convince somebody else that certain such and such is true or right or whatever. John? We'll repeat them. We'll repeat them. Try to remember. Good. 
and people, uh, uh, since they're not converted on the day that they're born, before the time that they are converted, cannot do that which is good. And so, uh, it's not a matter of from the time that they're born that God offers them the possibility of doing what is good, but only at conversion does that come to them. And from then on they can do what is good, but before that time they could not do anything but evil. Why did I make such a point of saying that, that Augustine was a Manichaean before he became a Christian? 
is that uh, his, the ideas that uh, many of the ideas that Augustine put forth are uh, the same kinds of ideas that were involved in Manichaeanism, such as matter can be evil, uh, the dualism that's involved in Manichaeanism. Um, that when you have that kind of idea and then you bring it in, bring it into the Christian system, then you have to find some kind of an explanation for it. Whereas in the Christian system itself, when God creates everything and then says it is good, you have a problem. Then how do you say then that what God said was good is now evil, um, as far as physical things? And so his ideas for Manichaeanism were brought into Christianity, and he didn't automatically lay down uh, the ideas that that Christianity had, as uh, the Old Testament, New Testament, the Judeo-Christian framework excludes such as the idea that matter is evil in itself. And so when he brought those ideas in, then it influenced his uh, concept in Christianity and then brought him to the conclusion of irresistible faith and irresistible grace uh, because of his idea that man is totally corrupt because he is, uh, because of the nature that he has. Manichaeism, to be pointed out, is a combination of uh, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and um, Gnosticism. It was very, very rampant and popular at the time, long since Western Northern Africa. And um, he was a Manichaean for about, uh, I'm not mistaken, 11 or 12 years. He was I think it was about 12 years. So some of us who studied his life feel like that uh, subconsciously there were some strong influences carried over into his interpretation of Christian truth. Um, one of the commentaries said that the reason, uh, a book on philosophy, said that the reason that he accepted originally the idea of Manichaeanism was because he could then say that his physical body was responsible and not he himself and his choices for the things that he was doing that were wrong. And therefore he could excuse his irresponsibility by saying, it's my flesh.
question is again the, the difference between um, can somebody live without sin and do people live without sin? And the only way that I can answer that is that to say that someone did something which was wrong when they could have done that which is right is only to say that they chose that. And many times it appears to be an enigma to God even why they would choose to do what is stupid. Many times in the prophets you see God saying, oh, that only that you'd obeyed my voice. Then your righteousness would have been as the waves of the sea, or as the ocean and your peace would have been as the waves of the sea. But he doesn't seem to understand in some cases why people choose to sin because it's so stupid when they can see that it's better to do otherwise. So saying that people have sinned is only making the statement that they for some reason have chosen to do so. It says nothing about the reason, and it doesn't say, it, to say that they have sinned does not say that they had to. To say that I sinned yesterday is not to automatically say that I must sin or that I am determined to sin. It simply is saying that I have sinned. So to say that children do not grow up without sinning is only saying what they have done, not what they could have or could not have done. I think it's important to point out too that um, along with what Russ is saying, many people don't sin as much as they could. In fact, I, I believe that there are many people who have only sinned on rare occasions in their life. I believe I've met individuals who have only sinned on a few occasions. And I think that there's a degree here that's important to take, take into consideration. For instance, I have met people who became Christians when they were children and cannot recall with utmost sincerity sinning more than two or three times in their life. Really godly people. And so, you know, they, they haven't had the wrong kind of attitude. But if you look how many times I have not sinned, it's pretty... And, I don't quite understand, but you know, this is where I am. Guilty 
because the entire race could have done something else. And to say that it has been done, and to say statistically that it's very, it's, it's most probable thing that will be done, is not to say that it has to be done, or you eliminate guilt. And I think too, it's important to remember this, um, this point that I'm just made. I mean, it's been a really helpful thing in thinking through the fact that not everybody has been as simple as they possibly could. If you take statement, all men have sinned, does not mean that all necessarily all men have become extremely rebellious and sinful. It was um, stated that the context of Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, uh, a rendering of that also could be in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, of Romans, that it means Jews and Gentiles when it's speaking of all have sinned, uh, rather than every individual, because Enoch then may have been an exception to that, and that particular scripture would not be true. Thank you. 
is how can a person who is totally depraved recognize what is good? And as was mentioned before by C.S. C.S. Lewis, uh, he had the same problem with saying that if you are totally depraved and cannot understand even concepts of what is good, how do you know that you were depraved? Not even not only how would you know it, but you would never admit it. <laughs> You'd have to know it to admit it. Yeah, right. It's interesting. I think, too, if I, if I can just make a comment along this line, that um, for a long time, uh, theologically, I held the view that man was born in sin, and then I changed my uh, view after studying the scriptures and uh, hearing some teaching. And I didn't change it right away. I went through about six months of study. Uh, really intensely. And every every question has not been answered yet in my mind. I could bring up some questions that some of you haven't brought up um, that I'm still dealing with myself. But I found that far more questions were answered for me than were left unanswered. And I far preferred the questions that I had with this particular view than the questions I had with the other view. They seem to put questions in the area of understanding man rather than questioning God's character. I went through the same thing as far as the questions were concerned. The questions take on a different nature. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just pointed out that um, this repeated left for the microphone. Okay. He looked up in the scriptures and can't find it. Says that Enoch is blameless. I might, I might be wrong. That happened before. I, I would have a. <laughs> I would have a I would have a tendency to agree because I can't think of a scripture that says that you need to explain what's given. But I think that has important because it seems to rest an awful lot of simple examples. There are maybe more theoretical backgrounds that you do with them. But I think that perhaps that could be that could be a reason not to that. Well, I could think of another one that's um, more verse. It's in uh, Luke chapter one. Says that Elizabeth and Zechariah were blameless. Obeyed all the laws of God. Um, the question still reduces itself not to whether or not there is an example of someone who has not sinned, even if there were no example of someone who has not sinned, but the question is, everyone, if the scripture says everyone has sinned, as to why they have sinned. Is it because they could not do anything else, or because they all chose to do that which was wrong? The question reduces itself to that rather than finding examples of people who have or have not. Well, I think there's a special anointing that comes on men of God, but uh, some examples in the Old Testament of the prophets who had great anointing, they're not uh, free of, the, of uh, temptation. If Jesus had a special anointing, he was not free of temptation. I would say no, just because they have a special anointing to service does not mean they're free of temptation to sin. Jesus himself, the Son of God, was tempted and could have sinned. There's tremendous pressures. He faced pressures that we face on a human level, and he faced pressures and temptations on a level that we have not known. The question is, if we live out of fellowship with God, 
and it's impossible for us to be righteous. Um, since man was created to live in fellowship with God, to say that man can live righteously without God is to basically say that man can live righteously without keeping the first commandment, which is sort of inconsistency. Man cannot live righteously without keeping the first commandment. Um, either whether you take it the first one that Jesus quoted or the first one of the of the Ten Commandments, to say that man can be righteous and still have other gods than the Lord God is in basic inconsistency. So no, a man cannot be righteous if he is choosing to live apart from God. He cannot he cannot be righteous because he's breaking one of the commandments plus going against the way he was created to live. Which is some sometimes people think that uh, when we say that man can choose to do that which is right, that we're basically saying that man can choose to live apart from God. And that's not true. That's, that isn't, doesn't logically follow. If man can choose to do that which is right, then man can choose to live in fellowship with God. And Romans 1.20 has always pulled me up short when I thought that people might not have enough light to live with God. God says that they are inexcusable simply from the creation and are justly condemned because they didn't serve God just from this light of creation. 